Hello and welcome to the Recreation to Recreation podcast, the show where we explore the stories of people who have turned the activity that they love into positive change for our world. My name is Jen, and I'll be your sidekick on this adventure as we treasure hunt for gems of insight and wisdom while exploring the planet with our inspiring guests. Our adventure today will take us from the depths of the Bolivian jungle to the windswept isles of Scotland, where we'll be meeting with Laura Coleman to explore her world of art, communication, and wildlife conservation. Hi, Laura. Hi, Jen. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so exciting to be here with you. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about what it's like where you are. Well, I'm on the Isle of Egg. It is very windy and rainy today. There are sheep outside my window. And during the winter, we get ferries four times a week. And the ferry was cancelled today. So none of our vegetables and packages are arriving today. So it's very stormy out there. And quite a unique way to live, right? Yeah. I imagine it probably has to be pretty bad weather for them to cancel the ferry because they're probably used to some pretty uh, gnarly stuff up there. They are, yeah. <laughs> but it happens more than more than you'd think, definitely. Mm. Well, thank you for situating us where you are. And it's it's great because we're going to go, you know, from where you are there on the Isle of Egg and we're going to basically delve into the depths of the jungle. So I'm really excited for today. I wanted to start the episode by asking you some really weird and wonderful questions, just like a quick fire round, because it makes me laugh more than anything else. And I think that's a great way to start. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. <laughs> okay, amazing. So first off, we'll start easy. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Mm. What's your favorite street food? Ooh, Mexican. <laughs> Say a word that begins with the letter U. Umbrella. Excellent. Perfect for today, given your weather. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you fly on a plane, do you wear a neck pillow? I do not. Ah, uh, the roll up the sweater technique. But I, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I just lean on the wall or my neighbor. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> do you like the word dapper? Um, I would say I'm, I don't love it and I don't hate it. I'm on the fence with the word. <laughs> okay, perfect. And last but not least, and this is my particular favorite, would you rather come face to face with a miniature hippopotamus or a giant cockroach? And just to clarify, both are in a bad mood. A miniature hippopotamus. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no question. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> so we're going to delve into some adventure today. And to start, Laura, I thought it would be helpful just for people listening uh, and also for me because, you know, we've known each other for quite a few years. But, you know, with, you know, life the way that it is, I haven't really ever been able to delve into this. So who are you? <laughs> You know, kind of like your, you <laughs> oh, let's go no. with your like origin story. You know, how did life begin for you? And what, what's it been like being you? What a question. <laughs> let's get back to the miniature hippopotamus. <laughs> right? A bit easier. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I am from England. I grew up in the south of England. I had a pretty wonderful upbringing with incredible supportive family 
I went to university and I studied English and art history. And then I, on a kind of in the way that people in their early 20s do, or particularly, I guess, used to do more, I left the job that I had and I traveled to South America, to Bolivia. And I stumbled across an animal refuge. Whilst there, that refuge completely changed the course of my life. And so I suppose I'm not the person that I thought I would be when uh, I was young and imagining my future. But I am someone who has spent the last 15, 20 years learning about connections and relationships with non-humans and how unexpectedly deep and rich those relationships can be. And I suppose that's who I am. And that's what's kind of shaped the, the course of my life, I guess, up to this point. Yeah. And and that's that's a huge part of things is to kind of reflect on the periods of time in your life. I think when we're younger, we're like, I know who I am. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden things happen in our experience that kind of go, oh, wait a second, I have to kind of question everything. What I thought I knew about connection and my relationship with the world around me. One of the questions that I had wanted to ask was sort of this nature of your passion and how you came about to doing what you're doing now. Was it a forever and always more of a light bulb moment or a slow burn behind the scenes? Have you always had an affinity with animals? Is that something that was a part of your life before you went? Or is that something that really was sort of lit up by this experience? I always liked animals. I mean, we had dogs when I was growing up, but they weren't. (laughs) weren't difficult dogs, they were little spaniels. (laughs) I was never, oh yeah, I really want to go and be a vet or study biology or study conservation. I was more creative, more into art and and writing. And so going to Bolivia and, and working at the sanctuary was a total shock to me, like a total shock to the system. And also a shock that I fell so deeply in, in love with it and with, with those animals. It wasn't something that I had always wanted to do. And I think that was part, part of the, the joy of the sanctuary and that, that community in Bolivia that they, they give people who didn't have any kind of training or yeah special qualifications. They give people like me the chance and the opportunity to work really closely with these rescued wild animals. And there's a lot of trust there. You kind of have to, when you've been given this opportunity, you kind of have to sort of show up for it. But it definitely was a it was a slow burn. Like I knew that I had I had fallen in love with the place and with the animals, in particular one animal, a puma called Byra. But it took me a long time to I guess realise that that was what I was gonna do with my life. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of going kind of back and forth, back to the UK, thinking, Oh, okay, now I'm gonna now I'm gonna settle down. Now I'm gonna <laughs> my life is going to go back onto the course that I thought it was going to be on. I'm going to get like a proper job, get married and have loads of kids. And then within a few months, I would just be miserable. And all the money that I was earning, I was like, all right, I'm going to go back to Bolivia. And I did that for many years. I don't know when that light bulb moment finally hit me. I was like, oh, oh, this is my life. That's cool. <laughs> I'm awake now. I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to do the other thing. But yeah, it took a while. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've read your book, which is we're going to mm. talk about a little bit later. And 
it was beautiful. And I we've had this discussion before uh, that it really resonated with me in terms of that journey of adventure and discomfort and why we <laughs> why we mm. push ourselves <laughs> to go into situations that, that really uh, can challenge us, you know, physically, emotionally, um, psychologically. And, and I, I would love to talk about that, but just so that people listening can maybe understand a little bit more about how we can look for opportunities everywhere. Like, how did you stumble mm. across that opportunity when you were just sort of, you decided to go backpacking in Bolivia? Mm. I had a three month ticket to go to Bolivia and I was about two months in and I'd done all the kind of Lonely Planet um, uh, tourist things. I was, I'd gone to a town in Bolivia called Trinidad, which is on the very edge of the Amazon. And I was looking to hitch a ride on a boat into Brazil up the river. And a long series of misadventures ended with me being stranded in this town and with no way to to get to the boat that I booked on because it was torrential rain and all the roads were flooded. Then I just found a flyer for this animal refuge, which in South American terms wasn't that far away. It was only about six hours in a local uh, local bus. So, mm. and that was one of the, that was the only road that wasn't flooded. So I just thought, okay, sure, I'll try it. I'll go and, and see what it's like for, for a few days. But when I got there, you had to, the minimum time was two weeks. So I ended up, I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm exhausted and I've been on my own for a while, traveling on my own. And I, yeah, wanted to be with people again. And it was thought, this felt like an opportunity that was kind of too good to turn down. So I decided to stay and I was given the opportunity to work with a Puma. But for that, the minimum was a month. So I did agree to stay, but I thought there's no way that I'm going to want to stay for longer than a month. Two years later, <laughs> I was still in South America. I was still in the sanctuary. <laughs> yeah, and it just, that was, it just on the off chance that it had rained that day and it meant that I couldn't get on that boat mm. to Brazil, I ended up at the sanctuary and it was total luck. Right. It's one of those things. It's the beauty of hindsight, right? When you can look back mm -hmm. and sort of look at the path to what brought you to that life-changing experience. And even though it was a slow burn, you know, behind the scenes. And for anybody who is wanting to learn more about this, definitely read the book because it is very evocative. <laughs> <laughs> like you really get sort of like dumped in the thick of the jungle. And, and the way that you are, are able to really describe in such a deep way what that experience was like, especially all the physical side of things. Mm. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there's a few cockroaches in there. <laughs> oh, just a couple, you know, yeah. some of those, some of these, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you reflect back on that and you sort of say, okay, like all those paths forward were literally flooded. Like not just, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. oh, that, that one wasn't calling me or, you know, that one yeah. I didn't really think was right. Physically, you couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel incredible gratitude that I, that I was able to, uh, that I was in that situation and I, and I did show up and I didn't get so terrified the first night of the tranches in the toilet and <laughs> the, <laughs> the wild monkeys and uh, all the, the terrifying things that I, that I did stay. I'm so grateful that I was 
assigned to the puma that I was. Mm. Um, and I'm so grateful for that community that offered me that opportunity and the chance of, of finding such an unlikely home um, and a family in, in the jungle. And yeah, I'm grateful to the rain for sending me in, <laughs> in that direction as well. Right. Yeah. And, and at the time, if you reflect back on it, what were the kind of emotions that were storming around in you? Were you frustrated? Were you, did you feel like off course, you know, like, because th this is something that happens, you know, throughout our lives, right? Where we have plans and there's the, the great quote, you know, life is what happens when you're making other plans with just John Lennon. But yeah. how did, do you remember how you felt at the time? Yeah, very vividly. I felt completely lost and uh, just I was so frustrated because mm. I'd been stuck in this town Trinidad for it was about two weeks and I was totally on my own and there weren't any other travelers um, my Spanish wasn't that great at that point and uh, I was just like finally a boat had come and I managed to sign up to it and then it it rained and I was just oh, I remember being I was just yeah totally lost and just had no idea what I was doing and of course as most or many people in their early 20s or many people with kind of the privilege to be able to to go backpacking and, mm. and search for search for a life <laughs> those <laughs> light bulb moments <laughs> yes uh, just a life um, but, but yeah, yeah exactly yeah. light bulb moments um, for sure yeah, so like a lot of those people, I, I had gone traveling in the hopes that I would sort of figure out what I wanted to do with my life. At that point, when I was in Trinidad, I was two thirds through my trip. And uh, of course, I hadn't figured out what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> P.S. I don't think we ever really truly figured out. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> but I didn't know that then. Mm. Yeah, so I was yeah incredibly frustrated, and I had no idea if going to the sanctuary was going to be the just going to be a, a terrible idea. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I turned up, and it was nighttime. It was getting dark, and uh, just the local bus left me on the side of the road in the middle of the jungle. And yeah, it was it was terrifying. <laughs> so to say that you are outside of your comfort zone would be, mm, yeah. An, an apt statement. Yes, it would. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's one of the things that, you know, I mentioned earlier, and I'd love to talk about a little bit more, y your descriptions of the adventure, the discomfort, getting, you know, rotten feet from being in the jungle for mm. so long, you know, up to your neck and swamp <laughs> that one for me, I was like, yep, yep. <laughs> mm. <Yeah>. um, <laughs> it just really, yeah, it came a lot for me. I, I think you know, having had some adventures myself, I've been very fortunate and privileged. And that's something that for sure we should acknowledge here that we've both been fortunate to have those adventures mm. and to have those experiences. Mm. You know, it was a very visceral reminder of <laughs> those times yeah. for me. I've had the the gift of being also able to reflect kind of on, on my experiences too. And I'm wondering if we could just talk a little bit about whether you were always adventurous and happy to push yourself out of your comfort zone, or was this really like the moment where you were kind of, for want of a better word, forced <laughs> to really embrace this experience? Yeah, this was the moment. This was 100% <laughs> the moment. <laughs> nice. Um, although, I mean, I had gone traveling before. I had a gap year and I went to South America as well. And uh, I did some other volunteering. But this was, yeah, 
this was really the time when I was forced to, yeah, really look at what I was capable of and what I, mm. what I could, what I was able to do and what I was able to cope with, mm. what I was afraid of and kind of the validity of those fears and also how I just on a very kind of basic level, I'd always been terrified of spiders. <laughs> then I went to the jungle and the first night there's a tarantula in the toilet. Mm -hmm. and uh, you have to go to the toilet so uh, I just for me I just found myself I got over that fear that had mm -hmm. kind of consumed me for my whole up until that point I'd always thought of myself as quite a uh, shy socially anxious person not very physically capable very yeah not a, not a sporty person not someone who would kind of always go and join in with everything and yeah I was quite quiet I'm a shy person so being thrown into this situation was quite a it was a thing it was <laughs> it was a lot it was a thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> well and you know what's beautiful is like from the outside even the the simple choice to go backpacking on your own in a country with a foreign language is it to me a sign that you did have inherent bravery and that you will, were willing to go outside your comfort zone and that this was just a chance for you to push it even further. Yeah, I think that that is true. I, I love traveling on my own and I met so many incredible people um, mm. before I ended up at the sanctuary. It's amazing. I just want to take this moment to kind of reflect on the fact that putting ourselves or being put in situations where we're comfortably uncomfortable, I mean, it happens not just in the depths of the jungle, but it happens in our personal life, our professional life. It, it, you know, there's all sorts of different types of adventure, but they mm. all sort of have, I think, the same inherent trajectory, which is challenge chance to see it either as the thing that will defeat you or the opportunity mm -hmm. working through it and being you know willing and open to learn the lessons that are provided to us and then coming mm -hmm. out the other side really going like whoa <laughs> that, mm -hmm. you know that transformed me in a way that yeah. I really didn't expect so yeah. you know for those of you listening who maybe haven't <laughs> had that kind of moment. It doesn't have to be in the jungle. It can be no. in your own home. Um, it yeah, can be at work. all the time. Yeah. yeah you don't that, need that, to go across the world for it. You bet. And that's, that's yeah. a huge part of this in general, uh, is just to realize that these opportunities are here for us at any age, any stage, any time. Mm -hmm. So just to reflect on that. Mm -hmm. You can yeah. just open your front door and have those kinds of experiences. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about the sanctuary and, and basically what they do, just so that we can mm -hmm. give uh, the listeners a bit of a background on that. So uh, the organization, it's a Bolivian-run NGO called Comunidad Intuariesi, which means sun, moon and stars in three different indigenous languages, is an organization that has been going for about 25 years they rescue animals from the black market wild animals who are in need of rehabilitation and care and uh, lifelong homes they work 
with all kinds of wild animals from monkeys to pigs to jaguars to macaws. Most of them have been rescued from the pet trade or they've been in zoos or circuses or their habitats have been destroyed. Obviously a lot of deforestation in Bolivia. We often receive animals who've lost their homes due to illegal logging or through fire and flooding. Yeah, and the Camino del Torreasi, we call it Siwi for short. So if I say Siwi, that's what I mean. They have three sanctuaries across Bolivia and each one cares for these animals who've been, who've been rescued from the black market or from habitat loss. These sanctuaries, are they basically designed to provide a home for these animals for the entirety of their lifespan? Like, it's not about rehabilitation and putting back into, because obviously we're talking about literally the removal of their habitat. Like, there is nowhere mm. for them to go at that stage. Mm. And so the idea is that they would live their life out in, in this sanctuary. Obviously, where possible, we try and release animals where we can, as long as they're our habitats for them to go into. Siwi believes that no animal should be in a cage, no creature should mm -hmm. be in a cage. But the sad reality is that it's rehabilitation and release is really, really difficult. And it takes a lot of manpower and money and resources, um, a lot of which Siwi don't have. But also a lot of the animals have been too traumatized to be able to be rehabilitated or with the big cats you just it's just impossible to release them mm -hmm. the majority of the animals that see we take in that is the case that they are there for life so it's about giving them the happiest life as close to how they would live in the wild as possible so Siwi isn't a zoo that's why they have kind of minimum time commitments for the volunteers is when you're working so closely with these wild animals often um, ones who've suffered extreme physical and mental trauma. It really is about trust and time with their, with their human uh, volunteers and staff. So yeah, Siwi is quite strict with who's able to work with them and the kind of trainings that, that people receive. It's really, really important to be able to develop those kind of trust relationships with these animals who, who have been so uh, mistreated. The purpose of Siwi is really to give these animals the kind of life that, that's been taken from them in the best way that they can. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually the perfect segue into talking a little bit more about your personal experience with the bonds that you created with the animals, and we'll speak specifically about Wyra as well, of course, uh, as that sort mm. of core transformative bond. But I know that like from reading your book that you created bonds with so many different animals and, and people mm. as animals as well, mm. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and the environment that you were in, because you create a relationship with where you are as much as you create a relationship with the beings that you interact with in that environment, mm. right? sort yeah. of sets the stage yeah. and you yeah. know we see this we all create relationships with where we live for example and mm. you know whether you go and you i say accidentally in inverted commas live in the jungle for two years um <laughs> which maybe started as an accident but ended up being not really an accident as far as i'm concerned but uh, meant to be but yeah. you know ended up being a, a calling i'd love to just hear a little bit more from you about how that all sort of came together in that period of time where you really dedicated yourself to being exactly where you were? Mm, I think it was really important for me when I was writing the book that 
that it wasn't just a human story, that obviously the, the human community is so, so important, but that each of the animals was um, a character in itself, but also the jungle was a character in itself, because mm -hmm. as you say, you are in a kind of constant, ever-changing relationship with your surroundings, and those surroundings have their own <laughs> goals and mm -hmm. desires and dreams. And uh, yeah, that was for someone who had grown up in, I grew up in a village, but in a kind of pretty populated area of, of the UK, always kind of surrounded by, by people. And it felt like I could breathe mm. in a way I hadn't really realized that I'd be missing before. And to be kind of thrown into those such an extreme environment where life and death are literally all around you all day, every day, living in a, in a kind of ramshackle wooden hut where the rats and the spiders and the, and the mosquitoes and the monkeys and the pigs and everything is, everything comes in. You can't, there's no keeping them out. So you really are living in a multi-species community. And obviously we are, everyone is living in a multi-species community, but it's a lot easier to, to ignore it if you're living somewhere which isn't, isn't as raw as, as the Amazon jungle. <laughs> you can't escape it. It's so humbling. And I think it makes you, or it made me kind of appreciate and understand. And when you're living side by side with that, kind of constant change and the flow of growth and decay and life and death yeah it, it changed me as a person definitely mm -hmm. absolutely and I mean even if you live in the countryside you know as I do or as you did growing up there is this sort of natural barrier that we create even if we delve like we, we go into nature and we go for walks mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. things like that and even if we do actively become involved in our local environment there is a there is a difference to our experience when we are in a situation where there is no barrier there anymore <laughs> physically mm -hmm. yeah. as you said things yeah. come in and out they are in your experience at all times i can see that that obviously has been a huge part of your transformation in terms of your understanding and experience of your world and mm -hmm. i think that we are all capable of that that level of connection to our environment mm -hmm. i say environment in the bigger uh, grander mm -hmm. scheme of everything everywhere all at once <laughs> you know mm, kind of you know yeah, not yeah. just the, the physical environment the landscape or the backdrop to as you said becomes a character in your story mm. but all of the beings that are within it and you as one of them i'd love to just hear you talk about Wyra. Mm. Wyra, when i met her she was three years old she was a puma she'd been rescued at 10 months old she'd been owned by a street performer so the story was always that she'd been kind of on the street and tourists pay to to take pictures with with these wild animals and sometimes they're made to do tricks and so that had been her life what normally happens we don't know for sure but with her the chances are that her mother had been shot by hunters and then uh, wire and whatever siblings she would have had would have been taken by the poachers and sold on the black market so then she went from uh, being owned by a human as a pet um, and what normally happens that they get 
too big and uh, become aggressive because obviously they're in a situation that they don't understand that they're that they're not supposed to be in and then they become too difficult for their owners to handle so then they get either they get picked up by the police or they get left or they get given to sanctuaries like seaweed so that's what happened with Wyra. so she arrived when she was 10 months old when i met her she was three she was incredibly uh difficult (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) she was very scared of everything really she was terrified of the jungle and the reason that they can't be released is because they learn all their survival skills from their mothers and if they're taken away from their mothers at a young age it's almost impossible to to retrain them for them to relearn how to how to hunt, how to uh, protect themselves, mm-hmm. and just how to how to be in the jungle. That was something that Wyra, I felt so strongly with her that she just didn't understand. She was so desperate to be free and mm-hmm. to be wild more than more than a lot of the other cats that I met. She had this kind of deep yearning inside her to be wild I mean she was wild but to be to be free Mm -hmm. but she couldn't be she didn't understand that so it was an incredibly humbling experience being in her vicinity because she was scared a lot of the time and as a result she was angry a lot of the time but she was also incredibly affectionate and Mm. loving and she had the biggest heart and once she trusted you she would just come up and sleep next to you for hours and you would just be together with her side by side in the jungle and she felt safe um, in those kind of situations that was incredible but it was for me and her it was a long journey (laughs) (laughs) i would definitely say that there are people out there and as working with with people and animals for such a long time i've seen people who are just naturals with animals they're just you know those kind of people who just any animal just will love them Um, Mm. and i'm not one of those people it doesn't come easily for me me and my definitely we went on a journey together and it was many months and years before I felt that it clicked and I 100% trusted her and she 100% trusted me but we did get there and that experience I learned so much from her more than I've learned from from any human about how to be in the world how to trust how to forgive how to uh, how to be afraid um, uh, mm. and yet still be brave with it yeah and so I after spending those first two years in Bolivia I then spent the next sort of 10 years going back to the UK and earning enough money to go back to Bolivia and, <laughs> and going back and forth I was there every year in Bolivia working with Waira and trying to make her life as happy as possible and it was heartbreaking and it was the most i think gratitude is is the word that i feel it was it was such a gift to be able to 
to spend that time with her. She she was the the best teacher anyone could ever ask for. But she was also my friend, my my best friend. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think when we have the opportunity to not necessarily interact as much, but if you're out in nature and you sort of have a an experience with a wild animal, mm. which could just be witnessing, they just mm. cross your path or mm. even in the distance or something, you can feel a shift within yourself, right? When you truly mm-hmm. experience something wild. And I just kind of want to reflect on what you said about Wyra being wild, but not necessarily free. Mm. And how much of an experience we can have just witnessing animals in their natural environment in comparison to your experience, which was you were with her in her natural environment, but you Mm. had the opportunity to create a bond that is very rare. Mm-hmm. I'd just like to I'm gonna talk about your book, The Puma Years, and just what that process was like of writing it and sharing it with the world. Because you kind of spoke about her being your teacher, and I love that you mentioned vulnerability and that there's mm-hmm. bravery in being vulnerable and mm-hmm. putting yourself out there. And I think writing and publishing a book is kind of one of those big thing like man this experience in Bolivia going into the jungle and being uncomfortably (laughs) comfortable um you know really probably trained you a little bit even though every experience is so different it's a different type of fear to overcome maybe you could speak a little bit more about what the process was of writing that book and then actually launching it into the world oh my goodness writing the book was (laughs) traumatic (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think I I always knew I wanted to write it or I wanted to tell Wyra's story I wanted to yeah talk about this incredible relationship and experience that I'd had and not just me there are kind of countless people like me both foreign and Bolivian who've worked within seaweed and formed similar bonds with with wild animals there and uh, have been lucky enough to do that. When I left Bolivia the first time after those two years I was completely shell-shocked and I think I cried every day for about six months whilst I was kind of trying to earn enough money to go back and the only way that I had to process the experience I'm quite a um (laughs) I'm quite a close person I wouldn't say Mm. I share things easily don't articulate my emotions all right that's something that I'm working on (laughs) it's a process it's a process yeah definitely so I wanted to find a way to my way I guess to articulate what what had happened to me and the way I found to do that was to use creativity so I painted I was living at my mom's at the time and my room became a shrine to the jungle and to Wyra and to the monkeys and to the people and to all the that amazing community that I had found I painted I made sculptures and I wrote so I wrote a first draft of this book the Puma Years and it was completely sort of raw. It was just my, the jungle just being kind of 
vomited out of me onto the page um uh, my kind of love for it and uh, all that kind of vulnerability as you say and my love and uh, what i found with wira those kind of incredible experiences of yeah being with her in the jungle then i put it in a drawer and went back to bolivia yeah spent the next kind of 10 years going back and forth when i was interestingly people often ask whether i wrote when i was in the jungle and uh, i didn't mm-hmm. too busy um, living yeah exactly <laughs> that's the thing it's like i i couldn't because just mm-hmm. every day was so vibrant and mm-hmm. full of life sitting down and spending any of that time writing was uh, it's inconceivable i just wanted to spend all day every day with with the animals and with the people and in the jungle Mm-hmm. But I think the intensity of those of that of living that life made it perhaps easier to write when I was not there to kind of put those memories onto the page and make it as evocative of the experience as possible. It took me a long time to, I guess, have the confidence to take that first draft out of the drawer. When I did, I just knew that it's what I wanted to do. I rewrote it and it became a very different book because I was 10 years older. Me and Myra had gone through a kind of 10 year journey together. The jungle had changed as well. And I'd experienced forest fires every year. I'd experienced the jungle being just devastated, seeing more and more of it cut down every year and seeing the the trauma of working every day on the, on the front lines of environmental destruction but also seeing my friends in Bolivia who aren't able to escape to the UK when it gets too hard mm-hmm. um, and that is their their home and seeing how when you've been fighting fires literally all day every day for months and someone like me I'm kind of on the floor thinking how I can't I can't get up again or seeing another of your animals dying seeing more of the jungle being destroyed and yet those people who who run and have created that community there have taught me so much about how you can have hope in the face of such devastation and the animals have taught me that as well Lyra has definitely the trauma that she suffered was so extreme and yet she was able to form new bonds of trust with humans, with people like me. And she was able to kind of get up every day and and go out into the jungle and and be brave, be vulnerable, gradually, step by step, sort of face her her fears. All of that I I wanted to put into this book. Right. Um, But at its heart, I wanted it to be a love story between a girl and this puma between a girl in the jungle and all these rescued animals and this community because it's so rare that we see those kinds of alternative love stories portrayed in kind of popular culture there is such a need for them to kind of step outside the binary love story and have something a bit more queer and different and multi-species multi-species sci-fi um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, no, and I absolutely understand that I've told alternative love stories as well in terms of 
uh, my love and other people's love for water, for example, and mm, our connection. Yeah. Mine has sort of centered more around our connection with the environment rather than a, mm. um, a non-human, for example, which is, you know, we talked about that earlier in terms of this backdrop to our lives, which isn't really a backdrop because it's part of us and everything we send out, we get back, right? So mm. I absolutely echo that sentiment of the need for us to have a wider understanding of what love is mm, and being yeah. open to all the different kinds of love that exist yeah. uh, for us to yeah. experience in, in our lifetime. So yeah, that hits me right in the feels, buddy. I, I totally get that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was so beautiful to be able to see your art in the book as well. And I had mm, been on your you. website before and been able to explore it there as well. So anybody looking, please do check out lauracoleman.co.uk. And uh, you can actually purchase art on there as well, but we'll talk about that a bit later. Yeah. um, In the different ways that you can support. But I think at this point, one way for people to sort of engage with this story and to really delve deeper into this adventure that you had and the bonds and connections that you created, they can for sure pick up your book and, and read it. But also, I'd love to talk a little bit more, too, about the other things that you've done. And I didn't realize until I read the book that you had also stepped into a leadership position in the sanctuary. And Mm. I'd also like to connect that with the leadership position that you have also brought forth with your work in the UK with Anka. So perhaps you could go back a little bit as we sort of dot around mm-hmm. to kind of speak about that whole concept, how it came forth and how you really married together so many of your passions into creating something that really hasn't existed before. After spending a number of years doing that back and forth between Bolivia and the UK, I sort of realized that what I was doing to process my kind of experiences and, and connections with the environment with and with these these creatures by creating art and writing it wasn't a unique thing at all and obviously there are so many artists you could argue that every artist um, draws inspiration from what's happening around us mm-hmm. so I looked around and tried to find a gallery or an art space that was purely de- dedicated to artists who are working with environmental issues. And I couldn't find one in the UK. So I decided to set one up. And of course, I, uh, yeah, <laughs> I was living in Brighton, which is on the south coast of England. It's a very creative city. It was incredible the amount of support and the amount of people who got on board so quickly with the idea. And uh, we called it Onka, which um, is a scientific name for Jaguar, Panthera Onka. And it was a gallery, but it was also an art and performance space. The idea was that it was for all kind of forms of art and that worked with artists and scientists and environmentalists and activists who were addressing these kinds of environmental issues. I couldn't have done it on my own. There were so many people who embraced the idea and then took it and ran with it. And I 
I said that Wara was my best teacher, but I've learned so much from uh, setting up Onka and working with all those people, people from all different walks of life. And Onka has changed a lot over the years through all that kind of learning. We changed our mission to encompass social justice as well as environmental justice because the two things are the same thing, really yep. deeply entangled. <laughs> It's something that I'm really proud of. I think it was something that was really necessary and, and needed a safe space for, for people to come and, and talk about grief and justice and fear and vulnerability and joy. All the things that are ways to be in uh, mm -hmm. this complicated world. All the diverse ways of being human. And I think yeah. it was around that time or shortly after that you and I crossed paths for the first time. Mm -hmm. This was in yep. 2014. And, yeah. and I remember listening to you talk about Anka and talk about your experiences. And it was just a really beautiful thing to witness because you could see how much it was just a part of the core of who you are. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think we definitely talked about was that importance of surrounding yourself with people that make you ask the important questions, reflect on things that challenge you and support you at the same time. And it's so important to nod to the non-human and the humans that help shape us as we grow older and hopefully a little mm -hmm. bit wiser. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think it ever ends because um, no. <laughs> that would just be boring. But yeah. <laughs> also recognizing with Anka, watching you create this thing and then also being able to step back and let it become what it's supposed to become. And yeah. I don't know. I remember when you said you were moving to the Isle of Egg and I thought, okay, so she's got this, you know, gallery space in Brighton and all these other, you know, places she's connected to like Bolivia. And then I wonder that choice to move to this stunning island. Was that a sort of pull to, I don't know, recreating that connection and that openness with the world around you? Yeah. After living in the jungle, I found it very difficult to come back to city life <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, I never quite managed it. With Onka you often get organizations are, uh, or charities in particular be become kind of the passion project of the founder and founders find it very difficult to step away from mm -hmm. organizations and things that they've created. I suppose that was something that I never really, I was so happy that Onka was thriving and had all these people who wanted to take it on and 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 carry it forwards and and change it and uh, make it different and make it bigger than me i think i was really the proudest of onka when i stepped away from it and i saw it thrive and change without me i think i always wanted to find a way to to live in the United Kingdom close to my family, but that I could find a place where I could, yeah, have that feeling of being alive, being in a community, a small community, being as close to the natural world, to the winds and the water and the, and the trees and 
the kind of life that I fell in love with in Bolivia. And that was, yeah, the Isle of Egg. And I also, at the same time, I started really writing this book um, a few years. And this was just the perfect place to do it. And again, I was lucky enough to be able to come here. And I've been able to continue with the running of Onca from here. Obviously, not day to day on the ground, but I'm still involved on the trustee board. Um, and I also run a, a UK charity called Friends of Intuariasi, which supports the work of seaweed in Bolivia. So we do fundraising and we try and provide as much emotional support for them as possible. That's awesome. <laughs> no, and it's and that that's the thing, right? It's just finding the right environment for you to thrive so that you can continue mm -hmm. doing the work that you feel is contributing to the cause and the why of what you've experienced and how we can mm. recreate our world to be a better place. Mm. Yeah. And so I know that I had emailed you this because I'm going to be asking this question <laughs> <laughs> to everyone. And it's a little nod to my own, a book that really played a role in sort of having me ask these bigger questions. And so it's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in case nobody knows it, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure you do. Um, and, you know, if your answer is 42, that is fine. I will accept anything. Um, but. Laura, what do you think the meaning and purpose of life, the universe, and everything is? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I think connection. Connection between beings and species and the rocks and the trees and the, and the wind and the water. But also joy, I think. Being liberated and having enough justice in the world to be able to to be able to find joy and to cultivate that. There's an incredible book by Adrian Marie Brown. It's called Pleasure Activism. And it is about how to find joy and pleasure in this complicated world. And I would recommend it to anyone. So yeah, for me, I think it's those two things, joy and connection. That's beautiful. And we also have your three songs, which you sent in. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So I'll My be putting a, a link to those playlists and I'm excited for them to build over time and yeah. uh, different guests come on. And uh, I, I just thought that would be- I can't wait to see what other people choose. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's just like a little gift. I think music is one of those things, at least for me, that can really create my environment when I'm needing mm. to motivate or I'm needing to like take a deep breath or whatever it might be. Mm. It can kind of get you into that space in a way that is about connection and about joy and, mm. uh, and speaks directly to what you think, you know, the meaning and purpose of life, the universe and everything is. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> hopefully people will head over to Spotify and check that out. Laura, you know, thanks so much for, all of your time today. And what I really want to end with is the fact that through this podcast, we are going to be creating the recreation donation. And so there's going to be opportunities for listeners to engage directly with the things that we've been talking about. So you can head over to our Patreon page. And on there, we'll have 
all the links to the different ways that you can contribute. Obviously, when people think about donating, they automatically think about money. But the truth is that we can support in so many diverse ways, whether it's just even using your voice. I just want to really encourage yeah. people to think about the diversity of what donation means. And yeah. so just to briefly talk about it here, obviously you can donate directly to our cause, but you can obviously buy Laura's book and I highly recommend it because it is <laughs> it is a journey to go on, but it, it really, uh, you did such a, a wonderful job of taking, well, you took me with you. I was there with you. you. So thank you thank for you. the gift of being able to experience what you experienced. So you can mm -hmm. head over to Laura's website. It's lauracoleman.co.uk. And you can also purchase her art on there. And I'm correct in saying that the proceeds go towards Siwi. Yeah. <laughs> And then other opportunities. Obviously, if you're in the UK or maybe even abroad, Laura, people can get involved with Anka. Definitely. Just as you say, I love the idea of the donation doesn't just mean money. So spreading the word, sharing those stories, getting involved more actively on the ground. Check out Anka. It's onka.org.uk. And with that in mind, if people are looking for an adventure... <laughs> <laughs> they can also volunteer in Bolivia. Is that correct? They can, most definitely. <laughs> As I'm sure everyone, all the listeners know by now, it changed my life. It's a really incredible experience. They uh, are definitely accepting and are in great need of volunteers and any kind of help or support that people feel able to give. Mm -hmm. And so for those of you listening, remember, you don't need to go on some grand adventure in order to transform your life. If you are looking for no. an opportunity, <laughs> Laura and I would probably be the first to recommend it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Laura. This has been wonderful speaking with you and I'm excited to watch your journey as you continue becoming who you are. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This month's recreation donation is in support of Comunidad in Tawara Yasi. As you now know from exploring with Laura and I in this episode, they are an NGO that rescues, rehabilitates, and cares for wildlife recovered from illegal trafficking. They seek to end the trade in animals through educational programs, research projects, and public actions. Whether you can volunteer your time, money, or your voice, we hope you will head over to our Patreon page to find out the different ways you can support their unique version of recreation for the world. Please take the time to let us know what the stories we explored in this episode meant to you. And if you do take action to support this month's cause, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Recreation to Recreation. If you or someone you know has a unique and inspiring story to tell, make sure to reach out so we can share it with the world. Until next time, keep happy, keep healthy, and keep exploring.